chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. If you haven't already, I do want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah 11. The passage will be on the screens behind me, but I want to invite you to take out uh, your Bibles if you haven't turned to Isaiah chapter 11. Now, in case you uh, were not aware, now if you were here for the, the women's equipping class, you probably noticed, but in case you were not aware, I have a, a kind of a weird hobby, okay? I, I love pencils. I love, I love pencils, all right, not mechanical pencils, but, but nice, nice, uh, you know, cedar uh, pencils, you know, with nice graphite in them, yeah, it's not lead, it's actually graphite, you bet you didn't know that, right, like, it's graphite, not lead, um, but I love pencils, um, and it's not just that they're my favorite writing tool, um, I do write a lot, I do, uh, the 90% of my sermon prep is with paper and pencil, nice paper, nice pencils, I love to write, um, I love the way pencils smell. I, I, I'm weird. I'm telling you, I'm weird. I love the way they smell. I love the way they feel. I love it. I, I can. I write most of the time. I've, I've joked with Corey before. We've talked about different spiritual habits, and one of my spiritual habits is journaling. I journal twice every single day, and uh, one of the reasons I do that. Some days I literally just journal to hear the pencil on the paper. That's that's why I write, and I just keep writing because I genuinely enjoy the experience. And if you didn't think I was, you know weird enough already now you have even more reason to be like yeah that guy's he's 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 out there but i do i love them i love pencils so much that i actually uh, have a subscription to a pencil company okay they they send me they send me a box of limited edition pencils four times a year and i get so excited about it now you can say what you want i have discipled a few of you already all right so some of you out there can't be laughing at me right now because you got your black wing in your hand right now i know you do um, or it's at home. Uh, Corey actually sent me a, 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 something on Instagram. He was like, have you seen this? And I was like, yeah, that's my boy right there. Yeah, looking at those cool pencils. Um, but when the boxes come in, they always send this like extra swag. And they are genuinely, it is, it is pretty cool. They always focus on someone from uh, art history or someone really influential in, in uh, the literary world. 
or, or the music industry, and, and they honor them with, with a special limited edition pencil, and they teach their story. Um, the one I got last week actually came with this little, uh, uh, you know, they call it a viewfinder, okay? It's a little cardboard square, and they, they sent this in the box. Um, the viewfinder was used by uh, this um, uh, art professor at a Christian uh, uh, college out in Los Angeles. She, she used it in the 1950s, uh, the 40s, I think, maybe into the 60s. Um, as an art teacher, this was her way of teaching her students about perspectives on the world. And so what she would do is she would uh, encourage her students to make a viewfinder, like you would find in a camera, out of a piece of cardboard. And their job or their assignment was to go out into the world and they were to hold up the viewfinder and they would look through it. And so you have, you have this scene, you know, if I, if, I, if I just did it on this side of the room, I would focus in on what's in the viewfinder and Miss Terry's actually right in the viewfinder right now. And it's really interesting because you have this, this picture of everybody sitting on this side of the room, but in the viewfinder is just Miss Terry. So whatever you did, if you went out, you know, and you were uh, walking down the street and you saw a store and you just like held it up to it and you look through the viewfinder, maybe you see just, you know, a, a piece of food or, or a particular person or an expression or a word that's, that's phrased in a certain way. And it was her way of teaching her students um, to be grateful for those small, ordinary parts of life that often get lost in the busyness of, of the world. Um, it's, it's a way to, to um, shift your perspective. Christmas is a lot like a viewfinder, offering us a new perspective on the world around us. What we've been doing as we've been looking at various passages in Isaiah is we have been taking a viewfinder and we've been holding it up to the birth of Jesus. We've been holding it up to the coming of Jesus and we've just slightly been shifting it, just shifting and shifting and shifting, looking at different aspects of his coming. We focused on our need for salvation uh, two weeks ago. We focused on our need to return home last week and this week we're going to be focusing on our need for peace. And when you hold up the viewfinder to the story of Christmas, to the coming of Jesus, you, your perspective is significantly helped because in all of the, the grand aspects of Christmas and, and even in all the distractions that, that tend to make their way in, when you're able to hold up a viewfinder and focus on the peace that Jesus brings and you're able to meditate on that the way that we're going to here in a minute, you're able to see a couple things. You're able to see the world as it actually is no distractions you know some of us some of us are kind of like leslie nope from parks and rec you know you just you've never met a bad day and everything is just rainbows and sunshines and and that's that's not reality um some of us on the other hand are, are more like eeyore um my granddad he used to play golf with a guy who he used to call eeyore i never really i can't remember his name i just remember him as nicknamed eeyore i hope he didn't call that to his face but he said it didn't matter he could hit a hole in one and he'd be like yeah, I hit a hole in one, but I triple bogeyed the last hole. My life is terrible. You know, it's like, no, you can't, can't do anything good. Um, our perspectives are, are typically off. Either we don't see the world, you know, properly, we see it as just all good, or we don't see the world properly, we see it as all bad. The coming of Jesus helps us, it clarifies us, it gives us a new perspective. It's holding up the viewfinder, and it helps us see that if we focus on peace, the world we live in, is actually a world of chaos and conflict. As, as much as we want to say we're living at peace, we have to admit we live in a world of chaos and conflict. But when we hold the viewfinder up to Jesus, not only do we see that he came into a world of chaos and conflict, but when he came into this world, he actually brought a kind of peace that will last forever. We're looking at Isaiah 11 to focus on 
the peace and wholeness that Jesus brings. For millennia, thousands of years, the Israelites longed for something that they called shalom. They long, we translate it as peace, but it's more than peace. It's a state of existence. It's a state of being. It's something that, that is not just a feeling that you have. It, it's something that fills the entire world. It's, it's peace. It's wholeness. No division. It is, it is the fullness of joy. And this was one of their ultimate hopes for the coming Messiah, that he would usher in an eternal age of shalom. They were waiting for peace, and we are too, because our world is filled to the brim with relational conflicts all the way up to national conflicts. And our depravity, you know what we have done? I hope you've noticed this over the past, really, it's not been that long. This is, this is sort of new. Over the past, really, with, with the advent of social media, uh, I think has been a big catalyst for this. We have turned conflict into entertainment. You might can go back in maybe 20 years, and maybe, maybe you could stretch back 20 years, but it's fairly recent. There's always been conflict. There's a unique problem in the West, maybe particularly in America. Conflict is entertaining to us. And I don't want you to sit here and think that you're self-righteous and you're above that. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever been entertained by just pure conflict? Not, 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 not a good story. I'm not talking about a story where there's conflict and then there's a resolution. I'm talking about the depraved inc inclination that we have to be entertained by conflict with no resolution. Just conflict itself. I, the more time uh, I've spent on social media, the more I have seen this is just a bunch of people who want to fight and they don't actually want to come to a resolution. My point versus your point, well, here's a counterpoint, well, here's my counterpoint, and it goes on and on and on and on and on and on until you get bored and you go to sleep and you start with somebody else the next day. There's no real resolution. It's because, why? Because we're entertained by the conflict. I think we're in a dangerous spot as, as, as a culture. And the reason that it's dangerous for our church, the only reason I'm mentioning it here, I'm not trying to start a culture war, I, I, the reason I'm even mentioning it here is because what happens out there seeps into here. And we start to become entertained by conflict in the church. And conflict becomes a part of our identity. So much so that we don't even know who we are if we're not fighting with someone else. Who are we? I don't have a problem what what how can I be a part of a church if something isn't going wrong you don't know we don't know what to do with ourselves what do we talk about if we don't talk about a problem what do we talk about if there's no conflict sometimes I think our culture's highest value is winning a fight and beating your opponent into submission here's the worst part of it we're good with it. We're comfortable with it. When you become comfortable with it, you become numb to it. And you don't see the devastating effects that it has on your heart and on our communities and the community of our church. A world of conflict, do you know what it breeds? Do you know the fruit that it bears? Weariness. Anxiety. Depression despair do you know what conflict takes away 
It takes away peace. It takes away grace. It takes away love, and it takes away joy. This is the world that we live in. Hold up the viewfinder. Do you see it? But the birth of Jesus signals the end of conflict because it signals a change in reality. The point of Isaiah 11 is that the birth of Jesus is the beginning of a new creation that will be marked by peace. The prophet Isaiah, he's writing here some 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and he shows us how his birth, how his coming, makes our desire for peace and shalom a reality. In Isaiah 11, we're presented with a coming king who is able to make peace, and then we're presented with a beautiful description of what a world of peace looks like. So here's what I want us to do as quickly as we can. I want us to consider two ways that we can experience true and lasting peace in the world. Two ways that we can experience true and lasting peace in the world. And then if we have time at the end, we'll consider what we should do as we wait for peace to come. Um, so two ways. Uh, the first is that peace comes through a new king. Peace comes through a new king. Okay, um, a king is necessary for peace to come. A king. Uh, we see this in Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. At the time of Isaiah's writing, the world was in absolute chaos, especially in Israel. This was the time of the exile. Um, uh, the Assyrians and eventually the Babylonians would take the people of God away from their homeland and into exile. And the reason for this, the reason for this, was that Israel and Judah, both kingdoms, they had a succession of kings who failed to lead them in a way that would lead to peace. The, the Israelites needed a king to lead them in righteousness and justice if they had any hope of, of living at peace and experiencing true shalom. But, but the kings, they had come and they had gone, and peace remained a dream trapped inside their hearts. The kings did not do what they were meant to do. They did not follow in the footsteps of King David. Um, in verse 1 here, Isaiah continues this forest imagery that he's really been using throughout his prophecy so far. So we don't have time to dig back in to the earlier chapters of Isaiah, but he's been using this imagery of, of a forest, of Israel being compared to a tree. Um, in Isaiah 6, Israel's pride is portrayed as, as a forest that has been cut down and burned. All right? Um, and in Israel's place, the kingdom of Assyria rises up. And then we see in, in, in Isaiah 10, Isaiah prophesies, he predicts, that the forest of Assyria, the forest of the kingdom of Assyria, would also be cut down. So by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 11, we have a really clear picture. It's, it's this picture of a field of trees that, that has, you know, basically met the business end of Rook's tree service, you know? Um, so if, if Rook offered flamethrowing as, as, you know, kind of an add-on. Um, but you, ha you have this field of trees that, that have been, all of them have just been completely cut down to the stump. They've been burnt up, and there is no life. You have this barren wasteland before our eyes. It's, it's a quiet and lifeless field. And 
what Isaiah is doing is he is pulling the wool from our eyes and from the eyes of the Israelites, and he's saying this is what life in a fallen world is like. It is a barren wasteland of conflict and chaos. Now, I want you to think of Isaiah as, as you would a, a movie director, okay? He's, he's giving us this panoramic shot. We don't get it from just verse 1 of chapter 11, but if you look at the chapters before, you have this picture of a field, the stumps, bare. And then, as the camera pans across, it stops and it starts to focus in on this one single stump. And from that stump is a tiny green shoot, a, tri- a tiny green little young growth, a twig that's, that's growing up from the stump. He tells us there, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root will bear fruit. Although the tree of Israel's pride had been cut down and burned, there is still life in the stump, and it's rooted in God's eternal faithfulness. From the stump of Jesse, from the line of Jesse, will come a king who will be what all the other kings before him failed to be, and will do what all the other kings failed to do. He will create an eternal kingdom of peace. I want you to note something about this future messianic Davidic king that Isaiah points to. He refers to this king as a descendant, not of David, but of Jesse. Do you notice this? In the New Testament, most of the references to Jesus, is, he's a descendant of David. You know, and they, they wanted you to see the connection to the Davidic covenant, to the Davidic uh, kingship and the line. But Isaiah doesn't do that. Isaiah says... The future king is the son of Jesse, and he didn't just make a mistake there. It was very intentional in what he did. You see, all of the kings of Israel that followed after David were referred to in one way or another as a son of David, a descendant of David, as they're referred to time and time again. But who is the only king who is the son of Jesse? There's only one. Do you know him? David. Only King David is referred to as the son of Jesse. Do you see what Isaiah is doing? He's, he's trying to make a point here. He's saying this new king will not just be like David. This new king will be a new David. This new king is a son. He is a descendant. He comes from the line. He is a shoot from the stump of Jesse. He's saying that one day a new David will rise up as a new beginning for God's people in the same way that the first David did thinking of the Messiah in this way as the son of Jesse rather than the son of David also directs our minds to a particular location. So when you think of King David, you know what city you probably typically think of? Jerusalem, where he, where he reigned as king. Whenever you think of Jesse, do you know which hometown you typically think of? Bethlehem. And so whenever Isaiah is pointing forward to this king who will come in the line of Jesse, he is pointing us to lowly Bethlehem where this future king would indeed be born. So a king is coming into the world of chaos and conflict to establish peace, Isaiah tells us. Now, now he tells us now in these descriptions what this king is like, what this king does, and who this king is. All right, so, so let's run through these really quickly. What is this king like? And he, he starts in verse 2 to describe this king. He's, he's emphasizing in these descriptions that this king is unlike any other king before him. Um, uh, 
Um, he even adds this small detail at the very end to show us that he is unlike any king that could ever exist in any time. But the characteristics of this king make peace a reality. Um, in the words of commentator Alec Motyer, I love what he says. He says, this king's character is the binding force of his rule. Why? Well, let's, let's look at what he's like. First, he is full of the Spirit. This future king who will usher in an eternal age of shalom or peace, he is full of the Spirit. Look at verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. Um, now, the, there were other kings who the Spirit of the Lord descended upon. Um, there were other people in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God would descend upon, but most of the time it was a temporary anointing. Um, whereas with this king, he possesses the Spirit of God in a different way, in, in, a, in a way that fills him, and the, the Spirit possesses and stays on him in a, in a special way. And because the Spirit is with him, there are particular things that, that uh, describe his character. He has wisdom, and he has understanding. Look at verse 2. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of of the Lord. He has wisdom and he has understanding. Wisdom is the reservoir for all of his thoughts and all of his actions and all of his decisions. Understanding, it's, it's this reference to a specific skill to see to the heart of issues. He leads with wisdom and understanding, but he also leads with counsel and might. Now these characteristics refer to like military strength and strategy. Um, he has the ability to plan the right course of action. He has counsel. But then he also has the power to carry out all of these plans that he has. He has might. He isn't, you know, just brains or just bronze. He has brains and brawn. He leads with counsel and might. And finally, he has knowledge and fear of the Lord. Now, I love how Motyer defines knowledge. He says, knowledge is truth grasped and applied to life. Knowledge of the Lord is also typically relational. So, so what Isaiah is saying here is this king is in harmony. He is in relationship with the Lord himself. Whereas the former kings before him, a lot of them, the ones who were unfaithful, they had spurned the Lord. They had turned their backs on him. They had rebelled against him and led the people away. Not this king. He lives in the knowledge of the Lord. And because he is in relationship with him, the fear of the Lord characterizes him. He fears God. The fear of the Lord, it typically involves loyalty and, and reverence and worship. So he knows the truth about God. He applies that truth to his life and to his people, and he lives before the face of God with fear or reverence. Now, each of these characteristics were lacking among God's people at this time. They desperately needed a leader to fulfill all of this. And each of these characteristics are found wherever God is truly present. And they are necessary for a king to bring peace. He has to be full of the Spirit, full of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Such a king can bring peace. But Isaiah then tells us what this king will do. He describes his actions. He's, he says, essentially, what does a Spirit-filled king do? How does he lead? Well, first we see that this king will be a king of justice. So, so look, look with me in verse 3 and 4. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. 
this king, he, he doesn't judge based on appearances or biases. He's not going to favor the rich and powerful because they're rich and powerful. He's going to do right by everyone according to God's perfect righteous standard. He's concerned with what is right, and he doesn't care about the parties involved. That doesn't bring any bearing to his justice or his judgments. He, he brings raw justice with full integrity, and this king will not allow the wicked to win. Do you see what happens to the wicked, to the, to the evil ones? It says, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. The power of the word of this king, the, the binding, trustworthy nature of his judgments, his pronouncements, his sentences on those who do evil. He is a king of justice, but he's also a king of righteousness and faithfulness. Notice what it says in verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This king who brings peace, righteousness, and faithfulness are at his very core the heart of his existence. This imagery that we're given here, belt is, is not the best you know, way that you could translate this, but it's really difficult to take this from Hebrew and put it into English to really convey the overall sense of it. But it's, it's really imagery that gives us the sense that these characteristics of righteousness and faithfulness are like the Messiah's most intimate garments, his, his, his underwear, his underclothes. I mean, I, the, the blasphemous even saying that. It's like, you know, the Messiah's underwear. You know, it's kind of like what uh, righteousness and faithfulness, you're never going to forget that. You're never going to forget that. Yes, righteousness and faithfulness are like my Messiah's underwear. Um, yeah, and I'm not going to say it again because maybe you'll forget after this. But anyway, um, that is the point. And that's, now you see why they translated this belt, right? And then they, it's kind of confusing here. Um, but the, the point is, the point that Isaiah is making here is when you strip everything else away, when you strip everything else away at the core, at the very heart of the Messiah is righteousness. That's what's left. When everything else is stripped away, you see righteousness, you see faithfulness in this coming king. So he acts justly and he acts righteously and faithfully. Now who is this king? Who is this king? There's actually one more piece of evidence here to help us be certain before you go ahead and answer Jesus. To help us be certain that this king is Jesus. Because right now what we could say is, well, this is probably the Messiah. How do we know it's Jesus? Let's, look, look down to verse 10. It's, it's so small. The detail is so small. I didn't even catch it until I read a commentary. In verse 10. In that day, look how just like in passing this is. The root of Jesse. So he's talking about the same person. But in verse 1, he refers to him, this king, this Messiah, he refers to him as the shoot of the stump of Jesse. Now, in verse 10, he refers to the same person as the root of the stump of Jesse. Now, don't get lost in the, in the metaphor. What he's saying is, if, if you're following the metaphor, if Jesse is the stump, if Jesse is the stump, this coming king is both the shoot who's coming from Jesse, and he is the root from which Jesse comes. Do you see, it? Do you see how unique this king is? The ultimate reason that this future king is able to bring lasting peace into the world is that he himself is not from this world, but from outside of it. He comes from the outside. So the king not only sprang from Jesse, 
Jesse also sprang from the king. The king comes from the family tree of David and Jesse, but Jesse, as a stump, owes his very existence to the future king who would come from his family tree. Or Jesus puts it more simply in Revelation 22, verse 16. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morn, the bright morning star. I mean, this is the mystery of Christmas, is it not? The baby laid in a manger is the eternal sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. The one born in history doesn't have a beginning. Because the future king is, is not just a man who's a great king, but is the God-man, both born into this world and not from this world, he is especially equipped to make peace an eternal reality for his people. If you haven't picked up by now, Jesus is this promised king. He, he is the one. He is the new David, born in Jesse's hometown of Bethlehem. He is the one who is endowed with the Spirit as the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove from heaven at his baptism. He is the one who came to bring justice to those who are discarded by the world. He is the one who is full of righteousness and faithfulness. Jesus is the promised king who has come to rule with righteousness and faithfulness, with justice, with wisdom and power. Peace comes with this king. There's, there's one more thing to see here, though. Peace not only comes when the king comes, peace comes when the king makes all things new. Peace comes with a new creation. So peace comes with a new king, but peace also comes with a new creation. So as king... Jesus doesn't just offer a new program for peace. You know, he doesn't just give us a list of instructions to follow to keep the peace. As if we just haven't figured it out yet, and it's a knowledge problem, it's an ignorance problem. And now that Jesus is the king, he's like, you guys have been getting it wrong, here's, here's the new program. And if you follow these steps, there will be peace in the land. Um, Jesus makes peace by transforming everything by changing the very fabric of the entire world. Jesus makes peace by making all things new. Now, I, here, I really want you to catch this, and I hope, I hope this helps. If that's true, that, that Jesus makes peace by changing everything in the world, by transforming the world, by making all things new, by a new creation coming to bear, that means that the world as currently constructed is not a suitable place for peace or shalom to exist and last. So it's not just that peace doesn't last here. Peace can't last here. We're under the curse. We live in a fallen world, which means that peace cannot last. Now you may, th I hope that's obvious to you, but if it's, if it's not, you're in good company. All of Europe would have disagreed with that in the early 1900s. Most of, most of Europe, mo most of Europe in the early 1900s believed that through the Enlightenment era, through the Industrial Revolution, through the Scientific Revolution, that humanity had progressed past the need to fight each other in wars. Wars were barbaric. Wars, wars were primitive. That's, that's what you do whenever you're, you know, you have this tribe here and that tribe there and you're, you know, fighting each other over a little parcel of land. No, no, no. We've advanced so far as humanity. We've progressed. There's progress. There's, there's no way that, that we're going to continue to fight. In the early 1900s, people in Europe actually believed that wars would end and that there would be peace because they had progressed beyond it. 
1910, a little thing called World War I happened. The most, the single most destructive and deadly war in the history of the world. And some cynical person somewhere said, told you so. Told you guys. But the world, under the curse, the world as it is, does not possess the qualities or intrinsic characteristics to make peace a lasting reality. That's why Isaiah tells us that when the king comes, he not only personally possesses intrinsic characteristics necessary to make peace reign, but he himself actually changes the world. And he changes the world in such a way to make peace reign. I want you to see this. This is a very familiar passage, but I want you to hopefully maybe see it in a new way. In verses 6 through 10, Isaiah shares three reasons why peace will fill the new creation that King Jesus will establish. All right, and the first is that the created order will be restored. So, so look, look at it with me, starting in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The new created order under King Jesus, I hope you picked up on the imagery, will sort of be like a return to the Garden of Eden. In this new created order, there is reconciliation between former enemies of predator and prey. Did, did you pick, pick up on that? Um, the wolf and the lamb sleeping together, taking a, taking a little nap. Um, and, not, and the wolf is not tearing the lamb apart. Why is that? Well, because they're, they're, the wolf will no longer possess the instinct to kill the lamb. Do you notice? Like, pick up on that. A wolf, a wolf right now, if you, put it, if you put it in a cage with a lamb, is, is going to get, you know, he'll just start salivating, you know? And he will tear the lamb to shreds. In the new creation, it won't even be a, a second thought. It won't even, it won't even come into the, the wolf's mind. It will no longer be an instinct for the wolf to kill the lamb. They'll just take a nap together. They'll hang out. Why? Because Jesus has restored the created order. So secure is the peace that will exist between former predator and prey that Isaiah tells us a little child will be right in the middle of them. And will lead them along. You know, the wolf and the lamb and the leopard. You see any babies out there with the wolves and the leopards? And, and he'll lead them along. This is going back to Genesis chapter 1. The dominion that mankind will have over the animals. And will not abuse them or destroy them, but will lead them and guide them and oversee them. This is the created order being restored to its original purpose. But I want you to notice too, there is a change in the nature of creation. Look, look at verse 7. This is, this is crazy. In verse 7, it says, The cow and the bear will graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now, it's possible this isn't literal. It's possible that this is just figurative, and it's just a way to say peace is going to be the new reality and the new creation. And if that's the case, then that's the case. But if this is literal, then it means the body composition of lions is going to be transformed. The body composition. 
the digestive system of lions, of bears, it, it will be transformed. I mean, can you imagine just driving down the road and looking out into a field and seeing a bear and a cow just eating grass together? It's, it, it doesn't happen now, and it's not just because, well, bears are mean. Bears, bears would die if, all, if they did not follow the diet that, that is now a part of their, of their, their digestive system. This is utter transformation. This, it's, it's a change that happens within the nature of creation. And guess what? This will also extend to humanity. Why will peace reign in the new creation? Well, in part because of the king. But also because of what the king does. He will transform our very natures. He will transform us from the inside out so that we will, like these animals, no longer possess the qualities or characteristics or vices that lead us into conflict. It'll be foreign. Peace will become natural to us. It will just be the way things are because the king will see to it because he is going to restore the created order. Something else that, that he's going to do in the new creation, though, to make peace reign is he's going to remove the curse. He's going to remove the curse, the enmity, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It will be removed. It will be gone. There will be no more conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and then, as a result, there will be no more conflict. Look at verse 8. We see this. It points to it. The nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den or viper's den. So you have an infant and a toddler playing with a cobra, viper and yes in part it's like this is just how peaceful things will be there will be no more animosity not even between snakes and children you will be able to trust your kid whenever he or she says hey i'm gonna go over there and play in the cobra's den okay just be back for dinner you know it'll be it'll be cool with you but but even more than that there's a theological emphasis here conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is gone the curse is removed and so peace will reign one more thing here and we see this in verse 9 God will be present God will be present they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea in that day the root of Jesse he shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. The coming new creation will fill the whole earth. Peace and holiness and knowledge of the Lord will pervade everything. What's wrong will not be done. What's good will not be ruined. Why? Because God will be there. This new creation will be the dwelling place of God. And where God dwells, peace reigns. That's what Isaiah is getting at when he refers to Zion, when he refers to the holy mountain. When the true and new order of creation is restored, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. The whole earth will be the Lord's hill, the Lord's holy mountain. And it will be indwelt by his holiness. This is the greatest work of the king who comes. And this is the greatest reality of the new creation that we long for. God's dwelling place will be with man.
this king brings peace to the world by making peace between us and God. When God's people are able to dwell on the holy mountain of God, in the city of Zion, the city of God, without fear, it is because they have been reconciled with man. It's because peace has been made. We will exist in an eternity of peace and an age of shalom, true and lasting joy, true and lasting peace forever, because Jesus, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, has made peace between you and God. You are at peace. And that peace will extend to one another, and you notice the language here, it will fill the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. This king has come to make peace between you and God, and he did this by coming under his own justice in our place. So what do we do while we wait for peace? What do we do while we wait for this age to be ushered in in full? You have to see that Jesus has already come. And because he has already come, he has already inaugurated this new creation. It has begun. His birth was the beginning, which means that he is already starting to make things new. He is already starting to transform things, and he begins with us. You are being transformed. You are being made new. Day by day, you are being conformed to the image of Jesus. So, because you are increasing in his likeness, because you are becoming more and more into what you will be for 10 trillion years plus, start living now as you will then. Make peace. Strive to make peace where there is conflict. Strive to be reconciled in your relationships. Work for peace and work to declare the news to others that peace has been made with the coming of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so thankful for today. I'm thankful for your word.